G'day guys. Now before we dive into today's show, I have a huge announcement to make. Now as you all know, I've been working on my brand new book called Investing in the US, The Ultimate Guide to US Real Estate. And I am super pumped to announce that it is now live on my website. It is live on Amazon. So please jump over to readgoosens.com forward slash books and grab a copy today. All proceeds from the sale of this book goes to charity. So remember to jump over to read goosens.com forward slash books and get your hands on one today. Now back into the show. We believe the world in these areas where there's density compaction is a mixed use world. And mixed use really means multiple uses for one space. And one space really, you know, multiple uses really means multiple lines of revenue. Multiple lines of revenue means diversification, not just focus on one thing. And hopefully that really the goal of all of that is to convert into higher value. Welcome to Investing in the U.S., an Aussie's Guide to U.S. Real Estate, a podcast for international investors and real estate entrepreneurs looking to break into the U.S. market. G'day, g'day, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another cracking edition of Investing in the U.S. podcast from Los Angeles. I'm your host, Reed Goosens. Good as always to have you with us on the show. Now, I'm glad that you've all tuned in to learn from my incredible guests, and each and every one of them are the cream of the crop here in the United States when it comes to real estate investing, business investing, and entrepreneurship. Each show, I try and tease out their incredible stories of how they have successfully created their businesses here in the U.S., how they've created financial freedom massive amounts of cash flow and ultimately create extraordinary lives for themselves and their families. Life by design, as I like to say. Hopefully, these guests will inspire all of my cracking listeners, which are you guys, to get off the couch and go and take massive amounts of action. If these guys can do it, so can you. Now, as you know, I'm all about sharing the knowledge with my loyal listeners, which is you guys, and there's absolutely no BS on this show, just straight into the nuts and bolts. Now, if you do like this show, the easiest way to give back is to give us a review on iTunes, and you can follow me on Facebook and Twitter by searching at Reed Goosens. You can find the show wherever you podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and Google Play, but you can also find these episodes up on my YouTube channel. So head over to reedgoosens.com, click on the video link, and it will take you to the video recordings of these podcasts where you can see my ugly mug, but the beautiful faces of my guests each and every week. All right, enough out of me. Let's get cracking and into today's show. Today in the show, I have the pleasure of speaking with Babak Zayai. Uh, Babak is a founder and managing principal at Brandview Capital Partners, an innovative commercial real estate investment management and advisory firm. Babak is also a professor of real estate at the University of Southern California, and he's extremely passionate about solving problems at the convergence of multiple disciplines of community, space, finance, and innovation. I'm really pumped and excited to have him on the show uh, to share his incredible experience and insight. But enough out of me. Let's get him out here. G'day, Babak. Welcome to the show. How are you doing today, mate? I'm doing great. Thank you for having me, Reed. Mate, my pleasure. We met a couple of weeks ago um, through a very good friend of mine, and uh, apparently you were used to work with him. And I'm really excited to talk to you today because when we did meet, you were just talking all in and about 
you know, and, and just a bit of a preface for this show, about how people live, work, and play, and how real estate development really plays into those three aspects. And I want to get into that in a little bit. But before we do, can you rewind the clock and take us back to when you made your first ever dollar as a kid? Sure, absolutely. Um, there's actually really two quick uh, moments that come to mind. One is when I was about, um, I was saving up for a new bike. And I didn't get an allowance and my parents wouldn't let me get a job because I was only 10 years old. And so I did have a bike that I really wanted to look like one of the BMX racers. So I painted it, I stripped out the gold from the spokes and made it Chrome, effectively modified this bike, and then um, our local community fair uh, was around the corner, and I decided I was going to raffle tickets to win the bike, and I felt that if I raffled the tickets, I would get a better, I would get a better total revenue than if I sold the bike. <laughs> I was not confident in the secondary markets for my bike, but I was in my ability to raffle the bike. So awesome. the crazy thing that happened was, um, the raffle went well. I think I raised something like 85 bucks. And the girl that won it is actually a family friend of mine. And she wins like this souped up wannabe BMX bike. And her parents brought her the ticket and she just said, well, I, I don't know what to do with this. It's effectively a boy's bike. And I said, oh, okay. She's like, you want it back? I was like, okay. <laughs> it, was, it was just silly. And so I ended up taking the bike back and then, raffling it again at the fair and so is this funny thing but um that was my first um understanding of um you know how your view of something can be you know marketed to the mainstream as a way to better utilize something like an old bike that i had spent a lot of time putting uh, modifications into but just didn't didn't know what it could sell for so i just thought i would market it to a wider audience that's awesome. So your view of something is different from what the wider mass is, and they may find value in that thing, and you can essentially sell it to them, right? I think that's right. I think as long as you see value and you can communicate that value after you've created it, or at least communicate your ability to create it, I think those are you know big lessons. I mean, the other the other moment was similar. I had I would assemble new skateboards out of a bunch of old skateboard parts. And the same thing, I would sell them to my friends and say, well, you should buy this, you should buy this skateboard, not only for the skateboard, but I'll also teach you. I was very into skateboarding when I was really young. So this call it, just again, being of value to others by putting in the work yourself. And so that was, you know, again, and, and I just never knew, well, I never thought, you know, like a lot of times you think, well, if I can make it for X, I can sell it for Y. I just really wanted to make something good and sell it. And I just thought, well, I don't know if they're going to buy it. So I'll also teach them how to skateboard. <laughs> it was just, I was really young. I was just thinking about how you can help someone and create something for them, you know, without necessarily being profit driven, just, but just getting some money for it, for all the work you put in, putting the board together and teaching them skateboarding and, and you know, creating this new possibility of, you know, how the board works for them. So. Awesome, awesome stuff. Well, mate, look, with, with all of that experience teaching kids how to skateboard and repurposing bikes, now bring us into where you are today. Like, what's that journey look like for you to get into involved in, you've started your own business um, in, in Brandview Capital. H how did that journey come about? Because a lot of people start off in real estate, and, and I know just, you know, you have experience in that, in the world of, of commercial real estate. So you want to give us a bit of insight into how you got it started in the real estate industry? 
Yeah, I guess. Uh, so I started Brandview Capital Partners about five years ago. Um, prior to that, I had cut my teeth at a large scale commercial real estate investment company that also was a development. So I got, I spent 10 years there and I got throughout an entire cycle of real estate all the way up, all the way down, and then back on its way up. And I got to really understand both the investment side as well as the operational side of combined operating, managing, and adding value to large-scale properties on behalf of investment funds, uh, which included pension funds, um, all very large-scale properties. I was very lucky for this training. And I arrived at, I finally arrived at the emphasis to go off on my own when I was becoming very confident in my experience and ability to find opportunities as well to analyze them and then assemble a plan that was truly feasible and start actually even working the plan uh, on, on a parallel path raising institutional capital. So institutional meaning large large investors normally you would just have one because it's a very large size investment anywhere from a minimum of 10 million to 50 million of equity. So if you add you know if you even get a loan at 50% of your total project cost. Those are 50 to $100 million projects. And so my, in, in effectively being able to find the deal and then go raise the money and then put the deal together and then start operating the deal, I said, wait, I've done this a few times now where I could probably take my show on the road. Um, that was really the internal introspective lead to it. The external was as I built this, what's called mixed use development platform for my old company, I really saw the opportunity to do much more dynamic value creation around mixed use properties, really leading with retail. So retail being the most shifted of the property types in the last five years due to how we now buy things online, Amazon, um, how now what with time we're left with, we really enjoy experiences. I thought, wow, that's really, if you can, that's really been the most disrupted Part of real estate in my view in the last five years that's really where the opportunity is to start there and then translate that back into not only retail but housing and office use so that was you know that was really the mission and uh, those two together led us to uh, starting the Awesome. So the, the, just to summarize it, it you, you had all that years of experience and then to take to have the balls to go out and start your own real estate company that would have that would have taken a little bit right like you know you've got to essentially now back yourself all those 10 years of or 10 plus years of experience in institutional financing finding deals analyzing them so to have that skill set to say i can go do this by myself it's a pretty big leap right and you want to talk a little bit about that mental anguish i'm sure we all face you know i've been i've been there you, i know when i first met we spoke a lot about that but sure just a little bit about how you overcame that to know to say to yourself well screw it i'm going to back myself and i've got to go out and do this thing yeah, I think that, and, and so that, you know, that was, you know, for me, 10 years in the making, right? I think um, in my fifth year into the job, really my sixth year, I started thinking, okay, I really want to go out and prepare to do this on my own. So along the way, I started to think about ways, as I looked at the business I was working for, how I could do this on my own. Everything I worked on, I started to think about this, you know, I started to simulate, wow, what if I was just me? How would I solve this problem without these other resources. How would I, how can I be resourceful on my own? Because the interesting thing about real estate is some of the largest developers are 
two, three-person companies. And you always wonder, and those were my idols. And so um, fast forward, I um, a lot of friends of mine were also, you know, threatening, quote unquote, to make the leap. And one of them was the most impactful who said, listen, what's your downside? You don't have, you know, at the time, I, you know, and still don't have a large overhead with a lot of family and kids. Even if you did, you just have to look at it from what's the worst that can happen and get comfortable with the downside. And for me, the downside was, okay, if you spend a bunch of money, lose a bunch of time, but learn a lot of lessons, is it really a net loss? It's actually probably the most valuable thing. And in exchange for that, if nothing works out, and I realize most importantly that I don't want to do this anymore, just go back to work. Your downside is your salary going back to work. And so I said, boy, that downside's pretty, I mean, I don't want to go back to corporate world, but it's not that bad of a downside. Um, and I think that's what where the psyche has really evolved over the years, where I've become a more entrepreneurial uh, freelance economy in the US. I think that has become increasingly how people start to look at it, which is the worst that can happen is I lose money, maybe I raise, you know, rack up some debt, but I go back to work and it's not the end of the world. No, I, I completely agree with, with everything you just said there. And looking at your downside and part of what I you know, struggled with internally was take, like that getting off that paycheck, right? That, that's right. the drug. Uh, of corporate America or you know, corp just the corporate world, you know, because a lot of listeners on the show come uh, listening from around the world. But it's such a there's always that, that, that one image that comes to my mind um, when I did make the leap. There's, there's an image, I don't know if you've ever seen it, it's, it's this big, huge horse and he's tied to a plastic chair. And because he and he's tied, like because he's, 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 his reins are tied around, and he thinks he's tied to a tree and he can't move, but it's a plastic chair. He's a big horse. He could just literally walk down the street and he'd be, and so much, so many of us as entrepreneurs face that, you know, that internal struggle of like, I'm that horse and it's not that bad. It's just a plastic chair. I can always find another plastic chair to, to, hitch, my, to hitch my reins to if something was to go wrong. And, and, and I guess the downside, as you said, is, you know, I can just go back and get another job. That's, that's the downside. And you learn a ton along the way, right? About yourself and about how to make it happen and be resourceful and all that sort of stuff. I got to tell you, I, I mean, I've been, you know, I've been lucky to be involved with a billion dollars of development projects working for the company. Um, and that was a really, really good diversity of experiences, both operating real estate and investing. But nothing teaches you about yourself and about business and about not only being resourceful, but from your, really from your failures, how to be resourceful as going on this path. And it's funny because I, Looking back, I was like, God, what if I didn't go through this? And I was, I wasn't a, I was no slouch at my old job, and I was, uh, you know, uh, you know, regarded, and I felt I was a decently high output individual <laughs> at my firm. I got promoted a lot, everything was fine. I was putting up numbers, it was great. But I was like, God, if I didn't learn these lessons, would I be, would I be as good of a future father, partner, you know, family member? You know, son to my parents, you know, you learn some real lessons on when your back's against the wall, how do you solve the problem? And that's, that's one of the most intense but educational and meaningful lessons that you keep basically putting yourself in front of. And a lot of people say, but God, it's hard, it's, it's grinding, you know, but on, on, on a, on, you know, the other way I think about it is just it's high-octane learning that really translates to other parts of your life. 
100% agree. And what you said about the your back is against the wall. And that's essentially what it is, right? You are now responsible. I always talk about you eat what you kill, right? And then the gruesome thing to think of, but it's it's true. Like you're, you're you're a lion right now. Before you had someone providing you kibble every day, you know, or and, and you can eat right now. You're responsible for putting putting food on the table, and that's that is scary. And I get it. I'm, I'm we're there. But again, back to that analogy of the horse. If you've got the experience like you have, you have ten years, a billion dollars worth of experience. You were able to go out and make it happen. And I guess the big underlying topic of this is that. You backed yourself, right? Like you, 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 if you can't back yourself, who are you going to ever back, right? As a, as a, as an entrepreneur. So I, I could talk all the whole show about this entire topic, but it's such a, it's such a interesting dichotomy that people face. And you know, you're so addicted to this, this, this paycheck, but then to go out and all of a sudden, wow, I can replicate my paycheck, double my paycheck, triple my paycheck within a year, like. Yeah, using my own resources, like wow, that's that's incredible. So, <laughs> and, yeah, and I would even start with, hey, I'm I'm making a quarter of my paycheck, but I created it myself. And there's an energy and there's an energy flow that comes from that, which is, oh, well, I'm still not making what I'm making, but it's more like, wow, I just created this mini engine for you know, and whatever your whatever your metric is, but I created this little engine that could, starting with. 10% of my paycheck, wow. I just, by solving problems and channeling my experience and creating value for others, that feels good. And then once that feels good, you start building on that. You just see, God, these little wins are actually huge, right? And then you start, you say, okay, well, now I've been doing that for a while. How do I do this? And, you know, so it's a, it's a journey. Did you, did you have a number in your mind or in your bank account that you said, okay, I've got X amount of dollars in, the, in, in, in stash, I can go do this for a year. And, and did you give yourself a time, a time horizon? You know, it's, um, it's interesting. I, I didn't. Um, and at times I would, you know, so in general, I didn't. In general, I said, yeah, I have some savings. Um, it's never going to be enough. Um, the way I looked at it was really twofold. One is I'm going to, I'm going to bleed money or in other words, I'm going to operate at a loss every month a bleed, quote unquote. But is that really a bleed or is that really an investment in yourself? And that's what it is, right? So anytime, I think people always think, God, if I'm, I won't be able to make my payments. You know, you think about the government, not to make a political statement, but we have compounding debt, right? In, in the fiscal economy here uh, in the US. But a lot of other, others would look at that and say, well, when you have negative cash, right? Cash going out versus coming in, that means you're actually building something. Right. And people know, I, I think that's what, you know, I think startup entrepreneurs who have you know, backing and they, they start to look at it that way. But when you're looking at it yourself, I think somehow that sounds, I find with a lot of people in general, that mental model gets lost where it's like, well, if, well, if it's me, I got to cover my expenses. Right, right, right. No, I think, I think bleed versus investment in yourself. And that's such a good way to look at it. It is an investment in yourself because going on an entrepreneurial journey, even if you're going to do it for a year or two years and it just turns out you, you can't do it or whatever, you, you lose money. And, you know, there's been a lot of successful business people out there, you know, who have started things. And the first thing they start is not the end thing that they end up at, right? They don't, you know, it's not, um, I'm sure Zuckerberg's of the world and the Googles, they didn't start at Facebook. They didn't start at Google. It's, it had iterations before they went to where it is today. And that's, 
And that's how we all are. Uh, you know, we'd like to take that 10 years worth of experience in real estate and put it into action and yada, yada, yada. But at the end of the day, I love how you said bleed versus investment in yourself. And I think it's so true that you've got to think of it as an investment in yourself. And, and, and to keep you, to help you sleep at night, one of the things that I was doing is, yes, I did have a year's worth of income um, in, in, my, in my bank account. So I was like, okay, I can do this for a year. A year came past, okay, I, I doubled that. Okay, great, I can do it for another year. And just kept buying myself time. And that for me, because everyone's different, right? That helped me just sleep at night and keep, like I've got, I can pay for my expenses, I can pay for, keep the roof over my head, but I can go on this journey. So I think it's really, really incredible. And I would say my answer, my other answer to the number that would keep coming up was, I have this money in my bank account. I'm very conservative about this money in my bank account, which would be about a year of salary, similar. Um, but I was like, God, I, I'm the only son of my parents. I, I want to create cushion for them. You know, they're retiring. God knows what can happen. I just wore a lot of this, call it responsibility on my shoulders. Also this feeling of like, I'm doing this. I really feel it's selfish. If I have a savings, I want it to be cushion for others. I don't want to be anybody's liability but my own. So the way I thought about it was, okay, we're going to do some consulting while we build the business. And that consulting should hopefully at least partially offset some of the expense for, you know, this takes longer than a year to figure out a nail, which it absolutely has. And I can go into why. Uh, and it's one of the weirder ways that it has because I get very early success. Um, and then it went on to, you know, really doing a lot of lessons there. But that's how I came about it. It was like, you can always do some consulting, problem solving, or hourly um, or fixed or retainer pay as a way to uh, partially, if not fully offset, but be careful that it doesn't, you know, keep you from focusing on the main thing, which is what, so it's a balance. Yeah, no, and I think that's a great little segue or stepping stone. Those people who are out there still on a W-2 or on a paycheck, a way in which you can transition a little bit more into your business is by transitioning to a 1099 if the company allows you to do it. I actually did that myself. I, I went from you know, working 60 hours a week and then I said, hey, I'm, I need to work on this thing. Can I, can I consult for you for 25 hours a week on a 1099? Now, some businesses may not allow you to do it, but, but, but it's, it's, this, it's, the, tea, it's, the, it's the, the weaning off that helps you allow to free up some time to work on a business, um, but then also keeps you know the bills paid, so to speak, and 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 and, and keep let you sleep at night. <laughs> and and it's it's and I will say for those that really have a you know I think having a business plan and a number all changes the, the second you actually jump. You know, so what what you know what what I keep coming back to is do do, do enough to feel like you're getting some compensation, but really treat it as an opportunity to get paid to learn about what you really want to focus on. Because your business plan might not actually really be baked. It actually probably isn't <laughs> until you go out and execute on it, which means you really need to be full-time not working at W2. So you will find that consulting is a really opportunistic way to, in the sense of getting some compensation to start solving problems out in the real world toward Partially, if not fully, confirming your thesis for investing. You know, if I, you know, we were, I was helping other family offices investors think through their investment decisions on certain deals as a consultant, and that helped me fine tune what I thought was a great way to invest on their behalf. Ultimately, so there is some fun convergence that you can find between the consulting and if you're building an investment business to use the consulting as a way to experiment and you know not lose all your time. Uh, get some paid for it. No, I completely, I completely agree. And I think the other thing 
you know, everyone out there, and I, you know, I don't encourage people, and we're not encouraging just to go quit your job, but everyone's, everyone's life's going to be different, right? The one thing that someone told me one time is the lights are never always all going to be green, right? It's not going to just be a straight shot of green lights. And sometimes you have to take those little steps of consulting. You've got years of experience. I've always looked at jobs being what is the most skills that I can pull out of this job that can help me ultimately become my own boss. And I think that's what you always have to have in mind um, that right now you may not be in a position to leave your full-time job or whatever it might be. So let's work on the next six to 12 months of getting those skills, being that like person that someone can lean on um, in order to then create a consultancy little business to then wean yourself back and work on your business on the side, uh, you know, in a, in a year's time or 18 months time. So I think it's, I think it's, I think it's a really important thing we touched on because it's, I know with yourself, you, you're, talk, you're talking to me from a, another WeWork-esque co-working space. I'm, I'm working, I'm call, calling from a, from a co-working space here in Manhattan Beach. So, you know, we, we've, we're making it happen. We're all entrepreneurs at the end of the day. Um, but I do want to dive into, you know, the topic of today's show, which is really all in and around your thought philosophy over how we are building things in today's world, particularly as it relates to retail. You mentioned early on in the, in the interview that, People, and, and rightly so, um, are shopping online. And, and the investment into retail per se and maybe restaurants is, is somewhat of a, viewed as a, as a high-risk investment. Do you want to start at the beginning of your sort of real, real, retail investing 101 for the layman out there listening right now and why you think it's still a good opportunity in 2019? Absolutely. I think overall... Um when you're looking at retail, you're looking at a macro sector. So retail really, as a word, encompasses a lot of subspecialties within the space. I mean, there's, um, there's retail, there are at least four to five different retail property categories, malls, neighborhood centers, community centers, power centers, strip centers, street retail. Um, and so all of those have different dynamics to them. Um, so as a sector, retail is always going to be part of our economy. Uh, however, what has happened in terms of how goods are purchased and sold and how, therefore, the space is used for the purchase, you know, for not only the purchase and the transaction of it, but also for the physical testing of whether it's a good or service within the retail sector, uh, how that now takes place. And so just historically speaking, Retail has not, we have not changed that. Retail has not fundamentally changed in over 30 years in, in terms of going into the store, seeing you know, a product of food or um, taking a service like getting, you know, if you're a female getting your nails done, for example, paying for it and leaving. Um, that hasn't been disrupted in over 30 years. So it has been high time for a change via technology. And that's really been the advent of e-commerce, the internet, specifically Amazon, but there are social elements to it as well that factor retail, right? Retail, historically, in our culture and economy has been a way for humans to interact. And, you know, there hasn't, you know, the, the peak of human interaction actually happens most, um, you know, when, in, in terms of focus, in terms of when families spend time together, it's out buying things, it's out eating things. And so then, what is the overlay that, creates the opportunity for retail. The, the, the bottom line, the real bottom line is, and by the way, we're not just a retail-focused property investor. We're a, 
We focus on all four property types, retail, office, multifamily, and to some extent, uh, logistics and industrial. But where we see the real leading up, we really lead with retail because of this shift. And the bottom line is this. All of this, in our view, has translated into within street retail, within a mall retail, and within some neighborhood centers, depending on the uses, retail has been using too much space and paying rent for it up until the last five years. And so we are going through a seismic shift in how they now use space to in turn provide value to the customers who can now choose between buying in the store, buying online, buying online, picking up from the store. There's a bunch of iterations now. And so but the way we look at it, because you know real estate is very much, it doesn't really translate unless it's simplistic, like buy low, sell high. You know, what's my IRR? What you know, so all of these things aside, with retail is effectively tenants in the retail sector have been leasing too much space. So what then is the opportunity? And so that's really where we say retail is now mixed use. Retail really then means when there's when there is a space on Third Street Promenade here in Santa Monica where it was a two-story flagship store leased to Adidas for all of it. And Adidas decides this is just too much space and we're paying too high of a rent per square foot on this space. We're going to go move down the street into a smaller space. Well, there you have the proof, right? They now pay same or slightly less rate per square foot on less space. So rate times less space equals less rent for them. They don't need that physical floor space anymore. They do need enough to still expose customers to their brand, the experience, the education of their product, and they're going to constantly figure out what the best mix is as a user of space. As an investor and developer of space, we look at that and say, well, wow, that leaves an amazing vacant space on Third Street Promenade. What does that now want to be? And we say, wow, well, you know what? It still wants to be retail, but perhaps it just needs to be retail on the ground floor. And perhaps even the retail on the ground floor can be multiple tenants who have the same incentive to want to have space in a high foot traffic environment like the Street Promenade. But can, you know, their sales from physical stores are a lot, a lot less to warrant paying as much rent. So they want a presence, they want what's called billboard value to have a sign on the promenade where all these people are but they don't need as much space. So great, let's chop up the space on the ground floor. And then wait, we have this entire second floor left. What does that want to be in this location? Well, we know that office space vacancy in Santa Monica is under 5% full. And that could easily be a new form of office. You know, creative office is really what everybody's calling office now. But perhaps it could even be co-working office. And then that really goes well with the high foot traffic environment very amenitized you know in terms of going for places to eat and so suddenly you've taken a two-story vacant box that has been i would say over exaggerated as part of the retail apocalypse and now you've created a wonderful solution where not only people can have multiple places to shop and interact in multiple small retail spaces on the ground floor also on the second floor now there's a place to work and you know we're talking about some of the best real estate in terms of location in West LA. So it takes, you know, it takes that multidisciplinary view, that vision of seeing value where others don't. It's like the bike. Like this is an old bike until I, you know, until I maybe change some of the parts out and it may, maybe looks like a hybrid of something else. Same thing.
I think I love very good explanation for those people out there who, who don't uh, understand the, the, the evolution of retail. And I like how you put it that historically retail has been over getting too much space. And, and you know, these big box retailers, everyone's scared all oh, these big box retailers are going out of business. And the way in which you described it was very, it was very on point. It's just that they've, they've historically had too much space to start with. And now the way in which we buy, i.e. online, that means that they don't need as much of that space. So maybe they can downsize. Now, I want to ask you, with those big box retailers, and everyone's, that's where everyone sees these big headlines on the news, oh, gosh, so-and-so is going out of business. You know, Sears is going out of business. How do you answer that, those people on the box retail side? And just let's put mixed use to one side for a second in terms of, um, uh, you know, the, the interaction of, of apartments up above and retail and blah, blah, blah. Um, that's from a design point of view. But from the historical big box retailer point of view, in strip centers, how are you seeing that change um, into people losing money and going bankrupt and all that sort of stuff? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, like any, you know, like any cycle, like in any sector, any sector, there is a time when innovation causes a seismic shift and it really is healthy. It's a healthy thing. So for us, this shift from big box retailers, and by the way, big box, big box stores are still very um, in demand. It's just not as much, not as many of them. And those that are underperforming so much real estate, this is usually right off the freeway, as a good amount of parking. These are large footprint spaces. And so that leaves an amazing, you know, once in a generation opportunity to go into a very well located piece of property that has been controlled by a Walmart or a Lowe's or other on these very long term leases in effect what's called encumbered. Couldn't get to the space. Now they're finally getting up those spaces. And Sears is one of the oldest retailers in America. And they have controlled some of the best real estate locations in you know throughout the US over the years and they have very long-term leases. And so now when they're going through a restructuring, that again presents an amazing real estate opportunity to breathe a new life into those spaces because these are, again, high foot traffic, high visibility, you know, spaces that now have finally been unlocked to do something better with. So I say it's healthy. I think it's a fantastic time to shed a lot of this skin, to shed a lot of this XX space and reinvent. So with those high, you know, so we, we, we're going to just separate in two things. You're talking about the Santa Monica's. The, these are very, like Santa Monica is the one of the hottest markets, sub-markets in the country, you know, to say up, up there with San Francisco, New York, and, and, you know, the Wall Streets of the world. But then you do have these Midwest type of locations where it's very bedroom communities, high, highways going to the middle of bloody nowhere, and they just build a community and they slap a Sears or a, Home Depot or whatever it is on a on 18, 19 acres, there's maybe two or three different major retails, a true strip center. How are you seeing those types of retail um, change the way we consume things? And then what is the investment opportunity for that type of it, for those spaces? You know, because again, we've got Matt, we've got the Santa Monica's in the real hot, hot, hot neighborhoods, but then we've got these you know, Midwest type of things where the cap rates are a lot higher and the cash flow better. So what opportunities could you make with those, with those type of assets? Yeah, I think, you know, in a lot of those cases, the big box or what's called the anchor, right? The, the biggest tenant in the center 
is still highly performing. What, you know, two things arise. One is, in the, like for example, with a Walmart or a Home Depot, they now have ways where you can purchase online and then just go pick up at the store easier than waiting. Um, they have other ways to service you both online and physically in the store, which is what they call this term omni-channel, multiple channels. Um, so they service that. Um, so it's not to say that the big boxes are going to go down, but what the big boxes now need is good, strong co-tenancy, meaning they need their neighbors to really bring the same level of traffic to the center in order to promote sales for all of them. And so that's where the opportunity now is. So one is the anchors are reinventing how they, how they do it, but really it's Walmart, for example, they actually own most of their sites. And what they have done is said, okay, we actually want to invest additional dollars in creating community centers in front of our spaces around parking that we're, on parking that we're not using because there's just not as many cars going there, but there's enough and their sales are okay, but they're doing a lot online. You know, the equation changes. These retailers aren't hurting. They're just getting a higher disproportionate share of their sales online now. So they still want the physical presence, but they're saying, well, we need to still create experience for people to come through. And so Walmart has been very proactive about creating community spaces, even bringing in tenants that they co-tenant with very well to take over their vacant neighbor's boxes. And so they've been very proactive about that. Another uh, retailer as grocery is Albertsons. They're doing, you know, where you can do, they're doing delivery to the home as well as pickup. And they're, they're as well trying to buy their own real estate under their leases to themselves redevelop who they want as their neighbors in the center. So really the base of sales goes up. They help each other maximize sales for each other, which in turn increases their ability to pay rent. And for us real estate folks, makes for a lower risk, higher cash flow investment. I know, I, I love it. So with that being said, what are, what are you seeing these big box retailers co- Co, let's call it co-invest or who are they trying to attract in order to downsize in their space, but then still keep the high volume of, of sales going through? Well, what, what, what are you, what's a, what's a good, um, uh, you said your co-tenancy. Yeah. co-tenancy. So the, you know, there's, there's these, you know, there's a couple of these, what are called the F's, you know, there's, there's what people still need to do, still prefer to do physically than online. And a lot of it is they just simply can't eat online. You can't literally eat a meal through the internet, right? So there's, you know, furniture. You still need to test out your couch before you buy it. Although some of the companies, the mattress companies are getting better at that. But in general, picking out a couch is still a pretty physical endeavor. So furniture, food, obviously. Having food around the center, people still want to go interact be around each other fitness again you know unless you're you know only peloton or um you know you have an you know you still like to be in a group physical human environment so those three really drive it it's like okay well who can we have that you know people still want to do these things outside they still want to they still want to place you know usually it was a place for commerce that drove it experience now that place for commerce has been bifurcated into online and physical but so how can we still promote human interaction and experience in these spaces? I mean, if you look at, you know, other, you know, these are other more, you know, tangential examples, but Coachella is the largest music festival in the world. Why? Because people want to get outside of their house. 
and be around each other and experience something, right? Burning Man is increasing, is growing by, you know, uh, every year is getting sold out faster and faster because what we're finding is over time, technology is taking over not only workers, but spaces, which leaves everyone with time and the need to want to do other things to be around each other. And so that is the opportunity is programming all of that together. Interesting. No, I, I think, yeah, you've, I, I completely agree that people are wanting experiences. And I'm just, if things come to mind, you know, if we, t- we just think about that Midwest type of large campus, a lot of parking, you, your fitness, as you said, your banking is probably something sure. you want to go and do in person, you know, even, you know, to an extent, get your nails done, um, getting your, your, your oil changed, they, you know, uh, coffee, Starbucks, and then, uh, you know, not necessarily, I've also um, shopping centers where I mean like uh, grocery stores yes. because people still need to go go to the market, right? So if those are the types of things in my mind that are coming to, you know, to, to my top of my head. That would be the types of tenancies, co-tenancies that you'd want to Absolutely. supplement one another. They're not going to be, not going to cannibalize one another because, you know, you sometimes see you go to food courts and you're like, why have they got two Mac or why the two burger chains right next door to each other? You know, like that doesn't make any sense to me. Like if you're going to own retail, make sure that the, it, it's a want that people need to experience something yeah. as, you, as you just said, um, but something that's not going to eat each other. Sure. Um, so I think, I think it's, 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 it's really incredible. What are you, what are you also seeing with the value add play in those large box retailers? I know I've spoken to a couple of folks about how you talk about exactly what you just said. Um, some big big chains want to own the land, right? So some of the, the value add is you go and you buy this huge park and you go and you can't you subdivide it up and sell that dirt to the individual, you know, Krispy Kreme or yes. it could be to the bank or it could be to Starbucks. Are, are you seeing those types of value add opportunities as well in, in and around the, the, the sort of Midwest type of shopping centers we think of it today? Yeah, I mean, so we focus mainly, mainly on like, you know, primary LA markets and more at more on strip and infill retail mixed use opportunities. But, you know, from what I, you know, and we track Midwest. So, you know, in terms of the Midwest, yes, that that continues to be an opportunity where there's job growth specifically around tech. So, you know, Midwest, I would say, you know, there's, there's great opportunity to be continuing to develop out in Austin and, you know, Denver in areas where there's corridors of significant job growth that warrant, you know, developers going in and saying, yeah, I'm going to control this whole site. And then on the basis of, I'm going to now create what the new version of the target wants to be, like the urban store, not the full target. And I'll either sell or lease a portion of them, portion of the site, them, they'll be my anchor. And then together we'll lock shoulders and program what makes sense to be the rest. So that's always the fun puzzle, you know, putting together that puzzle is really the, really the fun art and the science of doing some of that development opportunities. Yeah, hundred percent. So, so where are you seeing retail going and back to more focusing on your, your tier one markets? Sure. What's the future hold for, for retail here uh, in, in your world? What is, I'm sorry? The, what's, the, what's the future hold? What, where, where are we going in 2019? I mean, listen, we're, we're late cycle right now. So we're, our investment philosophy and approach is buy in very high barrier to entry areas and add value. And so you have effectively what I call a margin of safety in the location because there's always going to be demand for a property on the beach that has office and retail on it. 
so we say, okay, if that, that's one component, but the other component is, can we still add value to the space today? And so the opportunity for us is really repositioning ex existing buildings to meet the new needs of the, you know, the, the customer, the worker, as well as the user and form of living. So we believe in these hybrid entry markets, there's still multiple needs of space in a single space. So living, working, playing, all those you can try to service in one space. That then to us, albeit it's more expensive, it's not Denver, it's definitely not in Texas, um, provides a margin of safety in the form of defense. So when, you know, if there, if the cycle were to turn on us or there would be a massive correction, we're still sitting in a very highly, uh, highly regarded and well-located property. On the balance side, we do invest in the emerging cores, emerging urban corridors, and those are characterized by density compaction or a lot of foot traffic and car traffic. And those were servicing more daily needs in the form of reprogramming strip centers. Um, so we see within the tier one, both within super well-located stuff as well as the emerging corridors, there's a good margin of safety to continue to basically take what worked in the past, repurpose it for what's now going to, you know, with the future being really more mixed use in our view. Yeah, and, and being and being focused on the fact that there's a true value add there, right? Like Absolutely. you have to you have to be changing this twenty thousand, thirty thousand square foot space that was one tenant into maybe four different tenants because that's because the space is now the space needs have reduced, as you explained earlier in the show. Absolutely. I mean the programming really involves, you know, if that was a twenty thousand foot retail space, what I call right sizing the retail to what's important that a retailer can really live with and prosper in. Uh, which leaves then a bunch of space that in, that, in a, in a well-located you know, property, other people want to use in other ways. And so the way we just see it very simply is we believe the world in these areas where there's density compaction is a mixed-use world. And mixed-use really means multiple uses for one space. And one space really, you know, multiple uses really means multiple lines of revenue. Multiple lines of revenue means diversification, not just focused on one thing. And hopefully that really the goal of all of that is to convert into higher value. Uh, so you have an underperforming tenant in a single space that can be multiple tenants doing multiple things and diversifying and working together. So it's a really fun opportunity right now that we have. I, I, I could talk to you all about hours about this <laughs> on this because we haven't got into the cash flow versus the long-term appreciation and all that sort of stuff. Sure. But I think we've we've hit the main topics on on the on the head here today. I do want to be respectful of your time. Sure. Um, so we're going to dive into the top five investing tips. You ready to get into it? Let's do it. Mate, what is the daily habit that you practice to keep on track towards your goals? Showing up. Always Showing up. Show up. Um, one further, uh, cold showers. Cold showers. Yeah, nothing. <laughs> Tony, like, uh, nothing Tony like, Robbins cold showers and ice baths, right? Exactly. Cold showers in the morning. Nothing like finding yourself with a little bit of pain, and you know, and getting comfortable with that pain in the morning. It just sets you up for the day. Yep, love it, love it. Who is the most influential person in your career today? Uh, my mentor, uh, one of my mentors, um, who really he he inspired me to really take a run at the large business as a solopreneur and really made it feel like it was extremely feasible and more importantly really fun awesome awesome 
What's the number one tool in your business today, whether it be software or hardware related? Uh, the number one tool in our business today is our people. Um, I have a fantastic associate and I wouldn't want to call him a tool, uh, but, <laughs> <laughs> um, but I would say asset um, that would, is extremely resourceful and, you know, like a tool, um, an extension of, of, of me, the team. And so we really work hard and well together. Awesome. Awesome stuff. Yeah. I can't, I can't agree with you more. People, people makes the dream work. Absolutely. Um, so mate, what has been in the, in, a, in one sentence, what has been the biggest failure you've experienced in your career to date? And, and what did you learn from that failure? Yeah. Um, early success is the worst teacher. Mm, love it. Early success is the worst. I'm going to write that down. Early yeah. success yeah. is the worst teacher. What, what, what happened in your instance? Well, um, I formed this company uh, five years ago. In our second year, we decided to go back to investing from doing about a year of consulting and um, said, okay, well, we're doing a lot of institutional deals and why not try to do some more? And, and, and right away on my first try, we acquired and currently still manage a $34 million project with JP Morgan Asset Management out of New York. And um, I would tell you that that put in an excessive amount of confidence in making it feel easy. Um, it definitely wasn't an easy transaction. It had its challenges and we did our, we did everything and, and everything thankfully is working great. But I would tell you that in me, it, it created the sense of now expectation that that's how the rest of it's supposed to go. It's supposed to go easy. It's supposed to have this very linear path. And the reality is it's a very disruptive path. There are ups and downs people, companies, circumstances all change. And so for you to say, well, I just got this great thing accomplished and I was quote unquote successful at it. And suddenly that carries forward. You put that past into your future, you're set up for the normal failure feels like a shock to the system and the soul. <laughs> so, so I think what, what, you know, in hindsight, to me, the best, as everyone says, the best teacher is failure is getting, you know, is getting, you know, is taking a few blows, getting your quote unquote deep kicked in. Um, for me, because we were lucky and fortunate enough to have that early success, some of these lessons got a little pushed out. And so I say that was really the biggest lesson learned today. Awesome. I think that's so important to recognize that you do have early success and how that it's, it may not be as you said, a linear path upwards. You're yes. going to have some bumps along the way. So it's yeah, a good stuff. I mean, it was it was like the ultimate feeding of the ego, where we did that, we got that deal done. It's said, see, I told you I could do it all by myself and go. Yeah, and you know, it was like, oh god, that's not good. Not <laughs> 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 to anybody else. Uh, no, in fact, love you it. To delete that part of this podcast. You know, you get it, no, like, right? No. Yeah. It's this is no, please. The, the the more raw and vulnerable, the better. Yeah, Listeners love that. Mate, where can people reach you to continue the conversation? They want to be more in your sphere of influence. They right. want to check you out. Where do they go? Um, well, I'm on LinkedIn. Um, you can find me. My name is Babak Zi. Um, I think you have my name on the on the info for the podcast. But um, B A B A K as my first name, last name Z is zebra I A I. I'm also on Twitter at Brandview and you can see our website at www.brandviewcap. Brand like brand name, view like Mountain View, cap like baseball cap, brandviewcap.com. So we, you can email us through there. 
and would love to hear from your listeners in any way be helpful to you and your ecosystem. Awesome. Awesome, man. Well, just to, for anyone who couldn't quite hear that, it was brandviewcast.com. We will have all that up on the show notes and much, much more. But, you know, I really want to thank you for taking some time out of your day, out of your day Vivek, because you provided some incredible information. And just I want to summarize, uh, I think what you, you explained about how retail sectors are being disrupted because they historically have had too much space and everyone's panicking that these big box retailers are going out of business, but it's more to do with the... Um, the, the pace at which technology is advancing and that maybe they just need to reevaluate how much space they're renting for. You, you used, uh, used the Adidas um, analogy where they were in a huge 5,000 square foot space. They need to downsize because they don't need as much because people are buying online and maybe they still want to come in and try some things on. I also love your thought philosophy around um, creating um, people want to get retailers historically been about interacting with other humans. And that's so true. You, you use the, the um, burning man and the Coachella uh, analogy about people go out and want to be in and around other people. And that's what you've got to create in terms of your retail spaces. And that in, 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 in turn creates mixed use. So like when you go to Coachella, you have food stalls, you have music, you have paraphernalia, you have accommodation, you have all these different things, adding different revenue streams into um, the space. And that's what you have. You've got to look at at retail as well. And the last thing I want to talk about is, is you know, the co-tenancy, having those, um, those, thing, those, those suppliers or vendors who are still very mano a mano, nails, banking, fitness, um, you know, shopping centers to go get your groceries and stuff like that. Those are very still core um, tenancies that will complement one another uh, instead of being, you know, one big massive Sears or one big massive Home Depot. Um, did, did, did I leave anything out? No, I think you nailed it. Um, I, that, you know, and I only say that it's, a, it's part of a seismic shift, which is really the evolution. And so I, I think it's really the, the press and the headlines have made it sound like really an apocalypse when it's really... Uh, a really worthwhile and exciting shift for everyone to be able to use these spaces more effectively together and really really interact more. And I think that's really been what everybody's trying to figure out how to get back to. So we're excited to be a part of that. I love it. I love it, mate. Well, look, thank you so much for taking some time out of your day. Enjoy the rest of your week and we'll catch up soon. Thank you very much for having me. It's been an honor and a pleasure. Well, there you have it, another cracking episode jam-packed with some incredible advice and just some real insight into the real retail world and how it's shifting and going to continue to shift and how we as investors need to adapt and ride that wave. Um, please make sure you check out all the show notes from today's show, Babak's uh, contact information. If you want to get in touch with them, it'll be up on my website at readgooses.com. Thanks again for taking some time out of your day to continue to grow your financial IQ because that's what we're all about here on this show. And we're going to do this all again next week. So be bold, be brave, and remember, go give life a crack.